Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. Hey, Chloe. Hey, Raph. How are you going? I'm pretty awesome. How are you? I'm not so bad. Hey, um, <laughs> how's your cat? <laughs> My cat is good. Um, and I have absolutely, um, totally spammed Instagram uh, with with kitten videos. So anyone oh, really? who- Really? I didn't notice. <laughs> Are you being sarcastic? I don't feel yes. like you don't look at my stories on Instagram, I don't think. Come on, if yeah. you've been in my stories, then you'd know what spamming is. Uh, so I have thought, okay, I don't want to annoy anyone too much with kitten spam. So now Malibu, my new kitten, has his own Instagram. So if you would like to be spammed, there are people that really would like to be spammed by kittens. Um, and really, what kind of person wouldn't? So if you'd like to follow... I Malibu's advent. No, I Malibu's. Oh, you did. Okay. Mm. Oh, okay. You are being spam then. Mm. Yeah. Malibu and Chloe, for those that are listening along that would like mm. to learn more about my kitten. <laughs> and and uh, Cage Lion was so last month. Yeah. Oh, there we go. So Ralph's <laughs> actually coming with the first Cage Lion mention. <laughs> that was two. Okay. Two push ups, everyone. Let's go. <laughs> okay. What about you, Raph? How are you going? Um, yeah, I'm going awesome. Uh, today is is a great day of the week for me because I get to just focus on doing like basically what I think of as creation content, you know, like hanging out with you, um, talking about scapular instability. Um, I did a live Q&A this morning with a whole bunch of you know, folk on, on Zoom. And what's that called? Because we've got a, there's a, how, how do folks get involved with that? Yeah, uh, well, that's, you know, basically, you know, we used. To, I had this podcast called AMA Ask Me Anything, which could be just because I used to get shitloads. I have still do get shitloads of questions in DMs and mail and Slack and whatever. And so I made a podcast to answer them. But basically, I kind of got super sporadic with it and didn't really get organised to to do it. So uh, we're just doing a live Q and A once a week now, um, which is free, and all it is is just come and ask your questions live, and I'll answer them live. Awesome. Um, so if you've got questions about anatomy, biomechanics, Pilates, whatever, you know. Life? I'll, I'll do my – well, I'll, I'll give anything a crack. Literally you know? ask me anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so we had like 30, 40 people live online this morning and it's recorded and it goes in a Facebook group. It's called uh, Stop Faking It and Really Know Your Stuff, um, Pilates Q&A. And so basically, yeah, come and ask me your questions and um, – then you can join the Facebook group and watch the reruns if you want. Awesome. So yeah. we will link to how to join into that in the sure in the show yeah. notes. So, so anyway, had, cool. had episode number one of that today. That was awesome. A whole bunch of, you know, people who like geeking out over anatomy just <laughs> hanging out together. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So that was fun. So it was your jam. Yeah. And yeah. so today, like normally in my week, I do some business, you know, stuff and I do some teaching and I do some writing and I do some hanging out and today's a great day because it's it's just it's all the fun stuff none of the responsibility <laughs> <laughs> okay you are teaching a tutorial tonight oh, yeah, just FYI right. reminder, yeah. <laughs> as 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 your training manager yeah. I need to remind you of that there's <laughs> oh, that's, that's fun that's fun I don't no, see that as a responsibility I okay. see that as fun yeah. oh yeah nice nice one okay yeah. awesome <laughs> so um do we need to like now that you've got Malibu you, you and Malibu oh. together. Do we need to like, you know, do, have you updated your relationship status on Facebook? <laughs> so, guys, <laughs> this is a conversation that's basically come from me saying that I no longer need a boyfriend now that I have a kid and that, that the, the, the void in my heart seems to be filled. Um, so, not that, look, not that my DMs were going wild anyway, I have to say. So, you know. We'll let them still trickle in if they're going to trickle in, I reckon. Keep it open, Raph. Okay. 
Yeah. <laughs> and my take on that is that, you know, you're just such a kick-ass empowered woman that probably people out there were just kind of like screwing up their courage and it might take them a while to yeah, kind okay, of work I'll up to it. That. Moving on next. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a kitten. Things yeah, are fine. Who cares? Yeah. Who cares? All right. So um, do we want to get straight into shoulder instability or is there anything you want to? Yeah. Well, I mean, the main things, I haven't really got a, I've got to say there hasn't been any DMs as such this week that we haven't already answered. So I have had a few DMs and the, the DMs were predominantly around having difficult conversations. So this seems to be a theme that keeps coming up and up. However, these couple of um, people that DM'd me hadn't actually listened to the two episodes that we have done. So I was able to send them those episodes and and that really helped. So there does seem to be that the two different themes are having difficult professional conversations. So whether that be with um, a studio manager, colleague who has a differing uh, viewpoint to you in regards to queuing, biomechanics, etc. And then also uh, having difficult conversations potentially with clients. So the client that comes in wanting to activate their glutes or they say they've got the unstable X, Y, Z and, and they're coming in with this narrative and how. But I, I feel like we have, yeah. yeah. You know what? I actually got a, a DM from Daniel Bellelli. I think Daniel's in Sydney. Hi, Daniel. Um, uh, this week on Insta about this um, where she wanted to bring up the topic of instructors taking holidays Mm. and because we're largely a sort of a contractor and casual you know industry that it feels uh, so you know technically you should be able to just call up and go you know what I'm not coming in tonight or next week (laughs) because I'm on holiday (laughs) but well particularly if you're a contractor right right. um I might come back in June or maybe not I'll let you know you know (laughs) um but that's not the culture and that that most instructors uh you know, I reckon um, from my experience, and this is what Danielle said as well, that you know, feel kind of feel kind of bad about taking time off, and even when it's booked in advance, they feel kind of bad about taking time off. Um, let alone just going, you know what? I kind of need a mental health day today, or I, you know, I, I just need a couple of days to recharge or whatever. And so, she wanted to know, like, what's what's the what's the kind of ethics of taking 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 time off. You know what? She did DM me as well. It's just sorry, da- Danielle. Yeah. It just came came into. Sorry, I'm obviously got kid and brain. Is yeah. that a thing? Is that like yeah. new mother brain? You know, I've heard that said a lot. I I don't have a child, but it turns out I've got a kitten. Mm. So you know, my brain's very full of kitten at the moment. Um, she did slide into my DMs as well. Yeah, it's a really good one, and I think this loops in as well with um, sick having a sick day as well and things like that and and the horrendous guilt that instructors feel over that and then the pressure they feel to find their own cover when they're crook. Like I have literally been doubled over with gastro before, gastro, trying to get my shift covered. Gastro, like what? So I think I think there's a few things that are going on here. It's I absolutely agree that it is part of the culture, I don't think, I think it needs to change. And I think that um, that culture is actually quite toxic. Like I don't, it's not okay. Like there needs to be a, a shift, which will need to come from, it'll need to come from management and it will also need to come from the instructors. Like there's got to be a give and take. And I think uh, a lot of it has arisen from um contracting and I think the uh, amount of, and I'm just going to say it, there's a lot of sham contracting uh, in the Pilates industry. Uh, So if you're unsure whether you are legitimately a contractor or not, it's super, super quick to find out. Jump onto the ATO, type in. in a country that's not Australia. Or if you're in a country that, well, (laughs) yeah, good point. I don't know. I'm assuming in countries that are not Australia, you've still got some sort of what is it? America is it the IRS? Is yeah, it- so it's pretty similar in the US. I think that um, it's widespread in the industry that basically people are employed largely as contractors. And I just looked at an Ibis World survey recently. That's you know very recent data that said that's the case. And those that are not contractors are casual. You know by and large, there are very few people employed like permanent part time, permanent full time in this industry. Mm. And but the thing is that um, you know 
obviously I'm not a lawyer, but my, I'm fairly clear that if you're a contractor, the law is basically like to, to be a contractor, you've got to satisfy certain conditions. And that would be like a contractor would be like the plumber, you know, someone you'd get in to, to fix your, your electric circuit board or whatever at home. And it's like, so if you ring up Jim's plumbing and you say, oh, you know, Jim, can you come over tomorrow? And then tomorrow Jim doesn't show up. It's John. Right, Jim's like, crook, so yeah, he's got John to yeah, come in. Jim sent me instead, and yeah. you're like, I don't care, Jim, John, whoever, just fix the fix the plumbing, right? Correct. But in the Pilates studio, no, it rarely not, not it rarely same. works like that. It there are cases where you're a genuine contractor, and guys, by the way, get advice from the ATO in, ATO in Australia or where, whatever is the relevant uh, taxation body in your country, and also your accountant, right? Um, and you can get very clear advice, but what I what I was thinking, you know, it's it's like there is times where you are genuinely a contractor. I'm thinking about the times where I used to go um, and do a corporate gig at lunchtime at an office, right? That was all off. There's no middleman, all off my own bat. If I was sick, absolutely, I could send someone else in for me, right? But when you work in a studio and you've got your, you know, you're on the schedule, you know, consistently you've got classes on the schedule each week, et cetera, et cetera, very rarely would a studio be happy with you just bringing in someone from oh, outside. Who are you? Oh, I'm Jane. Oh, where's Chloe? Oh, I'm I'm here to teach. Chloe sent me instead. She didn't feel like working tonight. Yeah. You know, you can imagine that scenario wouldn't go it down. It would not go down <laughs> well at all. <laughs> not at all. So, um, I think okay. like the other, there's a couple of other things with contractors, like contractors generally supply their own tools. Like if the plumber comes, he brings his own tools, right? But Raph, I carry 20 reformers around with me. <laughs> no? Um, contractors <laughs> normally sort of supply their own uniforms and things, whereas if you work in a studio, they might have some kind of dress policy, like you've got to wear certain things or it's not okay to wear certain things. Mm -hmm. Well, that suggests that you're a, mm -hmm. not a contractor. If, I've worked at a lot of studios where I've had uniforms. Yeah. But I've been paid as a contractor. Yeah, if you're <laughs> if you're a contractor, the studio doesn't have any. You'd like they can't have a policy on leave or you know holidays or anything like that because it's like contractors don't have holidays because you know the, the plumber. You know, if the plumber wants to have a holiday on Christmas, he doesn't come ask me. Yeah, you know, he just says I'm not available over these times. You know, call yeah. someone else or I'll come in January. You know, mm. so uh, whereas in the studio in a studio that's not the case, and I think that comes back to this question from Danielle about taking leave. And I think it's, I agree with you, it's got to come from both sides. Mm. But I think, you know, in the spirit of radical candor, you know, if I could give some advice to Danielle and the, the other folks out there who might have this as an issue is I would approach the studio owner and I would do it in in an, in an a time where there's no stress and pressure away from clients and do it privately and say, hey, look, could I buy you coffee? What day is good for you? You know, and then I'll just sit down and say, hey, look, basically it's the same as the wage conversation, right? Mm. Chloe, you know I love, I hope you know I love working at this studio, right? And I hope it shows that I love working at the studio. What I love about the studio are the culture. I love the way you talk to me. I love the clients. I love the people that work here, blah, blah, blah. I love all these things, right? And I hope it shows that I love working here because I always show up on time. I'm always cheerful. I always fill my classes, blah, blah, blah. Here are the things that I love, right? But there's something that, you know, my needs are not quite being met in one area and that is holidays, you know, because I have family that live in XYZ state and I have birthdays and loved ones and things that I've got to go do, right? And so I need some time off to recharge, you know, from time to time. And so, you know, it's really not working for me, basically not having any holidays working 52 weeks a year. And so what would really make a big difference for me is if we could agree that I would take four weeks of annual leave, you know, and we could negotiate on when that would be, you know, at a time that would be a downtime for the studio, for example, you know, where it would be the least inconvenient, you know, um, I jump in. I, I, I agree. I don't know that it necessarily has to be though when it's least inconvenient to the studio. Cause I think again, that that's putting a, I think you need to give notice mm -hmm. of leave. I think you need to give as much notice as possible. I think that's really courteous. Um, so if there's plenty of time to plan for, for that cover, then does it have to technically be at a time that's most convenient for the studio? I don't it know. It doesn't, but thinking, but you know, thinking with my yeah. studio ha owner hat on, Yeah. Um, if I had, you know, just say you're the one of the most popular instructors at my studio and I love having you on the team and you're awesome and you always fill your classes and I'm like, Chloe's awesome, right? And then you come to me and you say what I just said to you, right? Except you say, and by the way, I want to take four weeks off in January every year. 
right? I'll be like, well, you know, January is our absolute busiest time of year, Chloe, right? You know that we are flat chat in January and that's when we get the most new clients. And if we make a good impression on those new clients, they become ongoing clients. And that's the time of year when I really need my top shelf instructors like on, right? And if you're just absent for every January, that's going to leave a big hole in the team, right? So that effectively reduces how much I love having you on the team because I'm like, oh, Chloe's awesome, but then there's this freaking thing every January where she disappears for a month when I most need her. So it's, I think, like give and give and take. Well, I think it's yeah, it, you've it's got to be give and take, and um, I think we work in an industry that I mean, we have to acknowledge that we work in an industry that when we work, we work when other people are not working, right? That's yeah, you know, we work weekends and mornings and nights and whatever, and so I think you know if. I've observed this in some instructors and I'm not saying in suggesting for a second that this is what Danielle's, you know, going through, but you know, I've just observed that and in myself as well, as instructors get more senior and experienced, they start to become a bit more picky. It's like, I don't want to do Friday nights. I don't want to do Saturday mornings. You know, I don't want to do the 6am starts anymore. I, you know, basically then it's like, I only want to work nine to five. And now it's like, Oh, I don't want to work public holidays. I don't want to. And, and so it, I, you know, I think that they instructors, if they go down that route, path become less and less attractive as an employee because you're like, okay, great. Yeah. You're an awesome instructor, but like you only work every fourth full moon, you know, on a Tuesday sort of thing. So I think it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be give and take on both sides. Mm. I used to love it when instructors took time off over Christmas because I would jump in and do all the covers. And it was fantastic. So when I was a contractor, <laughs> contract group Pilates teacher, I used to hang out for Christmas because everyone else had gone holidays and that's when I'd make my bulk of money. It was great. Christmas is an awesome time to, to have off. You know, we were always super quiet between, between Christmas and New Year's. You had like minimal classes on and just clients will take anyone. It's like they don't care who shows up to teach those classes. It was like, oh, it's, you know, we're all half drunk on you know, <laughs> it's a whenever, fun, you know? it's a really fun time to <laughs> yeah. teach. It's a really fun time to teach. Yeah. Yeah. So- all right. So, I mean, do you have anything to add to that? Basically, just a radically candid conversation with the employer is a, a good place to start and set out, you know, the guidelines of what it is that you need, you know, as an employee, um, holiday-wise? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I don't know, I, I just really want to encourage more conversations across the board in the industry, full stop. Um, it's, you know, I liken it to if you were in a corporate job, you wouldn't be hesitating to have these conversations, mm, right? Mm. But it seems that they're really, we get all pent up about them in this industry. We get all uncomfortable about it. It becomes a hard conversation. And that to me is the culture that needs to change. We need to be able to openly talk about um, leave, talk about being sick. If you're crook, you're crook, right? We need to be able to talk about, hey, am I genuinely a contractor or am I not? Uh, let's talk about, like, it needs to be opened up. Um, and I would love us to get to a point where we're not actually getting DMs about this because it, but don't it's- don't stop an, sending us your DMs. Don't stop sending us your DMs. <laughs> but it, it just kind of, it does um, sadden me a little that it still seems to be such a difficult conversation in this industry to have. And it just, I just it just shouldn't be. Well, so and hopefully this is helping change the culture. Yeah, hopefully. And yeah. Danielle and anyone else, like, you know, the kind of get out of jail free card might be, you just might- suggest your employer listens to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, of course you're entitled to holidays like anyone else. Yeah. And also without holidays, you can't recharge. I mean, uh, the first however many years that I taught, I didn't take a holiday. I didn't take a holiday for a very long. I took a sporadic couple of days here and there, and that was probably just because I was really sick and run down. Um, but actual time off and you can't bring your best self. So you can't bring your best self to that studio, to your clients, if you haven't had a chance to recharge as well. So um, I would hope that that employers would would recognise that as well. Yeah. What do you do to recharge? I play with my kitten. Everyone do a push-up. <laughs> oh, we're doing push-ups now, the kitten. <laughs> and cage line. There we go. There's another push-up. <laughs> This is a fun game. Okay. Um, cool. Yeah. So have the convo. Don't be afraid to have the convo. And uh, it's better out than in. Mm, I reckon that's a good saying, better out than in. It's better out than in. I mean, yeah. because otherwise it's the, it's the elephant in the room, isn't it? Just say it. Just say it. There's nothing. There's It's such wasted energy to sit and stew on things. 
think that's another thing like when, and it may be like something that, that comes up, I think for, for a lot of, uh, people that they've brought to my attention is sometimes when we perceive a, a real sort of social pressure to, to do something a certain way, actually, sometimes that's just an illusion. And when you actually bring it up with the person like, oh no, I don't care if you do it that way, you know, and it was, sometimes we just kind of build this up into something that it's not. Right? Oh, we've totally yeah. worked. It can go both ways because we could have totally worked it up or that other person could really need to say something yeah. to you, but they haven't said it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it, life would be so much simpler if we just, just, said, say, it. just yeah. say the thing. Better out than in. Better out than in. Better mm. out than in. Yeah. Okay. What are we talking about? Are we talking about? I can feel my, I can feel my scapula wrap yeah, on think, this chair. I, I think, I think it's a bit, you're a bit winged. Is it because? And like, yeah. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Down, in. There we go. That's better. Now I'm more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, what are we going to talk about today, anyway? Scapula instability. <laughs> we, well, we we thought of I, when we talked earlier. What, yesterday or something, I said, what do you want to talk about this week, Graf? And I mean, guys, sometimes we don't know what we're going to talk about until the moment we sit down and we go, what are we going to talk about? And I said, you know what? I'm pretty sure it's in our, in our show note, like our blurb, one of the elephants, mm. scapular instability. And we haven't, we haven't done an episode on it. So let's do an episode on it. Scapular instability. Instability. What a Pilates buzzword, hey? I think uh, well, when I when I was a kid back with Stop Pilates, yeah. it was called scapula stability. Right. Okay. Yeah, the in was silent. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think this is a concept that that a lot of people in the Pilates world, and even in like the sports and physio world, are kind of obsessed with a little bit, um, and also that people think is kind of a, the shoulder the shoulder girdle is kind of a complicated scenario and a little bit mystified by the whole thing and possibly intimidated by, you know, worrying about it. Um, so hopefully by the end of this episode, we'll talk you out of that and you'll be talking you off the ledge and you'll just be like, <laughs> hey, whatever, just, just get moving, do a few push-ups. <laughs> Who cares? Okay. Yeah. Great. So what's, what's the elephant? The, I, well, I guess the elephant is that if you don't stabilize the scapula, Aka the shoulder blades. Bad shit happens. That you're going to have pain and injury, I feel like, is actually the what what's linked to mm. to that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think, yeah, there's a whole, I mean, that's what I was taught, that the scapula needs to be to sit in a certain spot, you know, and when back in the stop Pilates world, I was taught that it needs to sit, you know, between T3 yeah, and, and T7. Yeah, and we palpated the spine yeah. of it, didn't we? And we... Three to five centimetres from the spinous <laughs> processes is descending, depending on the size of the individual. I always, always remember thinking, am Legal I really feeling what I think yeah. I'm feeling? I don't know. We've probably got some, has this guy got, yeah, he's got yeah. scapula. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of immobile though because they're, they're yeah. fixed on with <laughs> screws. Um, yeah, so yeah, so we were taught, we were, you know, and maybe the in whatever system of Pilates you grew up in, dear listener, you were taught a different set of rules about what the scapula is meant to do and not do. But, you know, basically the, the the thing is there's a set of rules. We learned a set of rules. And so that it's meant to be in a certain placement and it's also meant to move meant a, to move certain, a way. certain way. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, so the kinematics of it need to be very specific and even and... Great use of the word kinematics. Yeah. Thank you. When you say that, it makes me think, did I get it wrong? Yeah. No, <laughs> no kinesio means movement, yeah. right? So it's, kinematics is like how it moves. Yes. Yeah. Like so that would have been a cheer. You should have done there. Oh, cheer! <laughs> that made me feel good about myself. See, you've given me a dopamine hit. Yay! Long learning retention. I'm gonna re. Awesome. Thanks, Raf. Um. So <laughs> yeah. So the I think the you know to really kind of dig down or or, or think uh, more clearly about you know what you said there about uh, the the elephant is that basically if you if your scapula is not in the right place or doesn't move correctly, air quotes, you get injured, mm. right? Well, I think there's there's basically a causal chain of reasoning there and there are several assumptions in between A and A and Z there. Mm. And so right, there's and so basically the the assumptions are that in your shoulder joint, there is a joint between your humerus, your arm bone, and and your scapula. And the, the joint there is called the glenohumeral joint because it's the anyway it doesn't matter why it's called that, but it's the glenohumeral joint. It's the the ball and socket, and the ball is the head of the humerus. Yeah, and the the socket is the 
bit on the scapula and then kind of over the top of that joint, there's a little shelf of bone called the acromion, which is the other end of your scapular spine, right? The scapular spine protrudes out beyond the end of the scapula and it's called the acromion. And so the shoulder joint is this ball and socket joint and the ball's the head of the humerus and the socket's in the scapula. And then it's got kind of a little roof over the top of it called the acromion. And in between the top of the humeral head, you know, the top of the ball, in between the top of the humeral head and the bottom of the acromion, there's a space. And it's called, very, very imaginatively, the subacromial space, you know, the space underneath the acromion. Um, and when uh, in that space is the tendon of the supraspinatus muscle, right? Supraspinatus is one of your rotator cuff. It lives in the, above the scapular spine. And the tendon goes under the acromion there and over the top of the humeral head. And so what it, the, 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 the chain of logical kind of inferences in that idea that if your scapula is in the wrong place or moves incorrectly, there's injury is, okay, when you raise your arm up, the humeral head kind of rolls back in the socket and the humeral head is not a perfect sphere. It's got kind of lumps and bumps that poke off it at different spots. And if there's not enough space in between the acromion and the humeral head, when the humeral head rolls back, one of the lumps or bumps basically squishes that infraspinatus tendon up against the subacromial bursa, which is just above it, and then up against the acromion ultimately. And so what that does is it irritates the supraspinatus tendon and the subacromial bursa, and then you get an itis, which means inflammation of the, of the supraspinatus tendon or subacromial bursa, and then you get an osis, and then you, which just means something wrong with the tendon, then you get an opathy. Right, and so people come along and they have diagnoses of subacromial bursitis, subacromial bursopathy, uh, infraspinatus tendinopathy, rotator cuff tendinopathy. Sometimes the tendon frays, and then they get a diagnosis of rotator cuff tear. So all of those things like rotator cuff tear, rotator cuff tendinopathy, tendinosis, tendonitis, blah blah blah. Itis is an itis is an opathy in your shoulder. All fall under that banner of okay. Well, if the humeral head banged into it, that's what hurt it. And it's thought that if your shoulder girdle rolls forward, then when you raise your arm up, that's when the humeral head bangs into the acromion. So that's why we got this idea that your shoulder girdle shouldn't roll forward; it should roll down and back. Mm. Yeah. So all of those inferences are the ones, and most of those turn out to be not true. That's the thing. Mm. Well, one of my favourite uh, takeaways from Adam Meekin's um, course, uh, Complex Doesn't Have to Be Complicated, which was about the shoulder complex, um, was he actually just all of those things you just said, he puts it together in an acronym called SHITS. Mm, something hurts in the shoulder. Something hurts in the shoulder. That's the diagnosis, is it? Yes, shits. And this is like he is—he specialises in shoulder, mm. shoulder rehab. Yeah, um, something hurts in the shoulder. Yeah, shits. It's a goodie. It's a great one. It's a great one. So that's the end of the episode. Oh. <laughs> awesome! That was one of our best yet, Raph. Yeah. <laughs> something hurts in the shoulder. Off you go, guys. Yeah, don't worry about it. Um, it's not a thing. Okay, okay, I'm guessing we're going to go a bit nah, deeper. Just, oh, just, just, just yeah. joking. <laughs> so, all right, so, so the first, all right, so, the, so there's a whole series of assumptions. The first assumption is the scapula has a proper position, right, and a proper set of movements, right? Second one is that we can detect it, right? So if I look at your scapula and move like, oh, yeah, no, that's too high or too low or too this or too that, right? So we can actually. Kind of the same that we can just visually ascertain if someone's uh, pelvis is, you know, Out. anteriorly <laughs> tipped or, yeah. or rogue, like, yeah, yeah. come um, on. So, all right. So number one, okay. there's a right and a wrong position. Number yep. two, we can tell the difference by looking or palpating. Uh, number three, if it's in the wrong position, that actually causes a problem. Mm. Um, number four, if it's in the wrong position, it causes a problem. Can we use exercise to put it in the right position? Number five, if we'd use exercise to put it in the right position, does that change anything? Right, so all of those kind of assumptions are yet to be tested, and luckily many of them have been tested. And short answer is the answer is no. But let's go through some of the details. <laughs> so, um, firstly, in this idea of identifying, you know, the the position of the scapula, like you know, can can we reliably tell if someone's scapula is in the right place or the wrong place. And if you're out there and you've been trained in this, you're thinking like, hell yeah, I can tell from 10 meters away. Well, what I'm 
what I'm going to tell you is like, no, you kind of think you can. It's kind of like when I was a kid, I used to think I can always see when a man has a toupee, right? You ever notice when a man has a toupee on, like a, you know, a bad kind of wig that doesn't quite sit right, right? I'm like, every time I see a guy with a toupee, I can, I can pick it, right? But then like after, after years and years and years, I realized like, oh, hold on. What about the guys with toupees that I don't pick? And therefore, I don't know they're guys with toupees. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? yeah. So the only ones I know that I pick are the guys with toupees are the ones that I notice, right? I wonder like- <laughs> if toupees are getting better because I must admit I haven't noticed mm. a toupee in a really, really long time. Either people aren't wearing them anymore mm. or they've got better. I, maybe we're doing hair replacements now or something like that instead. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, Thank nothing you. against toupees or I'll hair I'll probably see them but- all over the place now that you yeah. know when, when you've – Right. I'll be focusing but on the it. The thing <laughs> is like when we think we're seeing scapular dyskinesis or scapular instability, dyskinesis is what they call it in the, the literature, like dys means not and kinesis means moving. So it's like not moving properly, right? So uh, scapular dyskinesis or scapular instability, as it's more colloquially known, like we think we're seeing it, but what about all the times we don't see it? And what about all the times we think we're seeing it when we're not really seeing it? So um, what there's this study which I've got in front of me by uh, Plummer et al. from 2017. And what they did was they got um, two groups of uh, patients. Some of them had shoulder pain or half of them had shoulder pain, half of them didn't have shoulder pain. Um, and then they had physios, uh, two groups of physios, look at these patients, right? Look at them sort of do arm movements and and look at their shoulder, you know, and decide whether they had scapular dyskinesis or not. And one group of the physios weren't told anything about the patients or just like, here's a person, watch them move their arm, tell us if they've got scapular dyskinesis. And the other group of physios were told, oh, this person's right shoulder is sore, right? Have a look at their arm and see if they've got scapular dyskinesis. Uh, I know, I can- And guess what? Guess where this is going. (laughs) Well, what what do you reckon? What do you reckon? So so obviously, obviously they they were like the ones with pain have- Right. So kinesis. Significantly, they the physios who were told. So the power of suggestion. Yeah, the physios who were told that the person had a placebo. shoulder significant, <laughs> you know, rated them Except as that this is significantly no more dyskinesis, yeah. you know, like dyskinesis. Yeah. Yes. So so if your client comes into you and goes, I've got a sore shoulder, and you're looking at, oh, yeah, it is kind of moving funny. It's like, yeah, maybe they just mm-hmm. placeboed you. Oh, you know? Do you know how many times I've had that done in Pilates assessments to me over the years? Because I, when I stand, one of my shoulders just naturally sits visibly higher than the other. That, like, the amount of Pilates instructors that have just freaked about that, like, oh my God, that's the worst thing ever. You must have pain in that shoulder, don't you? I'm like, no, no, you must have pain in that shoulder. We're going to work on that. No. Yeah. <laughs> like, most people have one shoulder higher or lower than the other. And apparently I think it's a dominant shoulder that's often lower. I don't know why. I don't know. I don't care. Dominant shoulder that's often lower. I don't even know lower. if that's true. I read it somewhere. Okay. Yeah. 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 So anyway, like we think we can tell when someone's not quite stable, but it's like, can you really? And the answer is, yeah, probably not. And so. I want to really challenge this notion of stability as well, but I'm guessing you're going to do that a little later on um, so I won't yeah, go down well, the stability there, rabbit hole well, yet there are a couple there are, there are a few kind of researchers here so you know tell me what you what's on your mind about that uh, a genuinely unstable shoulder is a, is a shoulder that um, dislocates a dislocating shoulder that is the only time a shoulder is genuinely unstable mm. right just because one of my scap does something than the other or whatever or one of my shoulders is higher than the other or et cetera, et cetera, has got sweet FA to do with shoulder instability. Yes. Like, like it's, it's, it's the wrong word to use. Yes. And I, I want to scream that from the, <laughs> the top of the building. Stop telling your clients mm. they've got things in their body that mm. are unstable. Mm. It's not cool. Mm. And it's just inaccurate. It is. It's both uncool and inaccurate. Yeah. Yeah. Because in biomechanics, unstable means doesn't return to its equilibrium point when it's disturbed, right? So someone who dislocates, that's an unstable shoulder. Yeah. Right. But if you're not dislocating regularly, your shoulder's plenty stable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just not a good image for people to have. It's, and I feel like we have actually, we've spoken about the word 
using the word uh, stabilise in, in other yeah. episodes mm. and sub out with still. If you're mm. if that's the intent, if you're asking someone to keep something still instead of saying mm. stabilise that part of the body, mm. use the word still. Mm. Better better still, <laughs> come up with some external cues. So actually last night uh, in our um, Fearless Movement tutorial with our wonderful November Cert 4 crew, we had a big discussion around the word stabilise mm. and why we shouldn't use it and what could we use instead. And, oh, my gosh, they came up with the – they had me in like a bird dog position, so they used me as their body. Where was the cat? And he was crawling around underneath me. It was very he cute. Wasn't stable. It was very cute. Malibu's already in the tutorials and very welcomed by everyone. Um, but what I loved is they even came up. I said, "So yeah, you could ask me to keep something still. But what if I already think I'm keeping that part still? Right from a modelling perspective, what if I already think I'm keeping that part still? They were throwing amazing external cues at me left, right, and centre. Things I hadn't thought of. So you just got to you got to stop." You got to think about the impact of your words, and there are plenty of other options to get the same movement outcome out of someone if that's what you're going for. Mm. Yeah, mm. you just got to stop and have a little think. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, moving on. Um, yeah. So uh, there are there are there are several bits of literature on looking at like is there such a thing as scapular dyskinesis or the, the layperson's term is instability, and, and is it related to pain? Um, and so there's one systematic review from uh, Hickey et al., I think it was, um, that in 2018, which found uh, the headline was scapular dys dyskinesis increases the risk of future, sh future shoulder pain by 43% in asymptomatic athletes, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So that kind of give away the punchline in the, in the, in the headline there. Um, but when you look into the, uh, and I'm sort of like paraphrasing a, a response by Chris Littlewood, who's a researcher in the UK, shoulder researcher in the UK here, where basically when you look into the guts of this study, it's a systematic review. They only had five studies included in it. So this is not very good literature mm. in this area. And um, four of them measured scapular dyskinesis one way and the fifth one measured it a different way, right? And so it's always hard to compare apples with apples mm. when you're comparing things that aren't measured the same way in the original research. And so when they removed that study, so that study that measured in a different way, they had to kind of like convert what they found and sort of convert it statistically into a different thing to make it match up with the other studies. Um, and within the, the, the this review by Hickey et al., they say, okay, if we remove that paper from the, from the pool and just go with the four papers that were measured the same way, there's, the result is not statistically significant. In other words, the error bar crosses zero in a statistical sense, right? So basically, it's 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 the whole result of the paper hinges on this one study, right? Which is not a good basis for drawing a conclusion with the study in. It's like, whoa, increase it by 43% with the study out. It's like, oh, no association whatsoever. So a good systematic review, Raf, how many, like on average, how many, how many, like, would there be in there? How many? Exactly? Uh, well, how a many? good systematic review. It's not necessarily like how many. Right. It's, it's like, the quality of. The it's research. the quality of. It's how many, and it's the agreement between the research. Right. Right. So when you've got a, a pool of research in a field, where by just removing one research paper from the entirety of the field, right, you change it from forty-three percent increase of injury risk yeah. to no correlation. Wow. Okay. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that says that there's just not. We, it's not a settled question yet, mm. right? We just don't have enough information to draw firm conclusions at this point, right? So, you know, the headline in this paper could equally have been no association between <laughs> scapular dyskinesis <laughs> and future shoulder injury in, in asymptomatic athletes. Yeah. So, yeah, so we'll po I'll post the, the this article and also Chris Littlewood's, because uh, I'm just paraphrasing what he said, um, Chris Littlewood's kind of response to it in here. Um, Chris and Adam... Uh, I don't know. The UK is a small place. They must know each other. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's there's also a, a systematic review from 2013 by Ratcliffe et al. called Is There a Relationship Between Subacromial Impingement Syndrome, which is like what we talked about right at the start, like all of those itises and otises and opathies that happen in the shoulder, shits, right? Um, and scapular orientation, a systematic review. And what they concluded was, quote, currently there is insufficient evidence to support a clinical belief that the scapula adopts a common and consistent posture in scapular impingement syndrome, end quote. So 
uh, and that was from 2013, so it's you know, seven years old now. But it's um, you know that, that's that's kind of the second best bit of evidence that we've got on this. Um, so yeah, I think there are there are there are there's not really clear evidence that there is such a thing as scapular dyskinesis and that it's related to shoulder impingement in the research. So I mean, we could just stop there. Well, we don't know that shoulder impingement's a thing either, do we? No, well, that's the sure thing. It's not a thing. Well, all of those, all of those other, you know, uh, links in that kind of chain of inference, like okay, the scapula has an idealized position. Well, does it? We don't really know. Um, we can detect whether it's in an ideal position or not. Can we? <laughs> Apparently not that well. Yeah. Um, and uh, is that, you know, is is it being in the quote wrong position or moving wrongly associated with pain? Well, maybe, maybe not. Not, not, don't really know. Um, but then all of those other inferences like, okay, when you move the humerus wrong, it jams up against the blah, blah, blah tendon and blah, blah, blah. And so, well, what we find is that a few trials recently, there was, there's, there's a, there's a, a trial that came out in 2017 in the Lancet that looked at subacromial decompression surgery versus sham. And yeah. so this is where, because of this whole, you know, set of logical kind of inferences that we have, that the humeral head is, jamming up against the supraspinatus tendon and the, the subacromial bursa up against the acromion because there's not enough space there, right, because your shoulder's in the wrong spot, that, you know, well, you go and have a surgery where they shave off the bottom bit of the acromion so they make more space there, right? So it's called an acromioplasty, you know, like you have a rhinoplasty on your nose, you have an acromioplasty on your acromion, they shave off a bit so there's less acromion, right? So there's more space, right? And so you'd think, well, if the thing's jamming into the thing and you shave off a bit of the thing, there's like, there's more space. And what they did in this trial was they randomized people to receive either acromioplasty or sham acromioplasty, where they literally just gave them a general anesthetic, did a skin incision, rinsed it out with saline, and then sewed them up and woke them up and said, congratulations, the surgery was a (laughs) marvelous success. (laughs) And they found at 12 months follow-up, they were identical outcomes. Like no difference at all, right? So acromioplasty surgery works exactly the same as placebo, right? Which is to say it is a placebo, right? It's just a sham. It's just a placebo. Um, So that really casts doubt on the whole mechanism. So it's a sham, it's a placebo, but you're also – Got the added risk of Infection going on an anaesthetic, anaesthetic exactly, all that, yeah. or the healing time, yeah. um, the yeah. rehab. It's an expensive and dangerous placebo. The, yeah. Mm. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, so, that, I mean, that really casts doubt on that whole chain of inference, right? If we can shave off the bottom of your chromium, it makes no difference compared to just pretending to do it. <laughs> like, yeah. And I think too, um, you know, because I, I remember back, back in the day when I – first learned to be Pilates instructor and absolutely I learned all about the kinematics of <laughs> how the scapula should move and whatnot and remember doing things like palpating a client and kind of like, you know, sort of coaxing their their scapula into a kind of different position. Does that feel better? Is that Yeah, that feels better. Oh, yeah, that feels better, mm. right? And thinking, okay, cool. So that's like the optimal position for that and uh, again, in in uh, Adam's course, and guys, if you've got it, if you're into this stuff and you've got a chance to do um, Meeks's uh, the shoulder shoulder complex doesn't have to be complicated. I highly suggest doing it, and particularly now it's online. It's like a, a day course, two day course. Um, and in that, he actually showed this great. And I feel like, oh, oh gosh, oh was this in Greg Layman's? Sorry, this is in Greg Layman's course. Everyone, stop. Stop booking. Don't do Meeks's course. Do Meeks's course. Do Ben Cormack's course. And also, these are, Raph and I have done all of these courses. Yeah. We love them all. And also do Greg Lehman's course. Um, what's Greg's called again? Reconciling Biomechanics with Pain Science. Yes, which is also online. And Greg's a great friend of Breathe Looks Education. Awesome. Yeah. Like we love he's all of a, those three guys we love. He's got a brain the size of the universe, but he's also a comedic genius. He is out of all of their, and I loved all of their courses, Greg was the funniest. Yeah. I'm just shout out to Greg. You were definitely the funniest. Um, and anyway, I adore all three of them. But this was actually, I'm sure Greg played in these because you're going to remember this. So there was, it was a big, you know, uh, there was a physio. He was on stage. Uh, no, it was, a, it was a surgeon. It was an orthopedic surgeon. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to tell the story then? It sounds like oh, you might remember it better just, than me. He's just looking at the scapula okay, and looking so at the patient move. So and, there's a guy, yeah. a young guy comes out. He's a young guy. And he's um, got shoulder pain, but you know he's young. Maybe he was a tradie or something, if I remember correctly, 
right? And yeah, visually, you can kind of see. The surgeon's saying, oh, look where his scapula's wrong here and this one's not moving properly and see this and see this and see yeah. this. Yeah. So, the, so the surgeon does all kind of this woo to the to this one side, to this one scapula, right? And and at the end, he turns and goes, to every, so you feel better? And the guy goes, it was the other shoulder. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and he's just done that in front of like a huge audience. Yeah, it's one of those just excruciating faulty towers like it was. It's yeah. so faulty towers, right? So it's just. I just want to cringe and go, no, was, the earth swallows me up. It was just comedy yeah. genius is what it was. But it's like, and the poor, guy, the poor young guy's just like, eh, it's the other shoulder. <laughs> um, so. What should we be doing, Raf, instead? So we've now determined that, okay, it's not a thing. Just let shoulder blades do what they're doing. It's not, there's not a correlation with um, shoulder blade posture and uh, pain, injury, etc. There's not uh, a correlation with instability of the shoulder because that is a different thing altogether, altogether. It's got nothing to do with this. So Pilates instructors that are out there going, but oh gosh, this is a big part of what I, you know, this is a big part of what I do in my initial assessment with my client. And then I program it in for them and we work on it. Isn't this great that you can not, not waste any more time on this with your clients and you can talk about their goals and what inspires them and what they want to do, you know, all of that stuff just get them moving. But what? I can hear the, the Pilates instructor is like, but my client has come to me because they've got shoulder pain and they want to get out of their shoulder pain. Oh, well, what do you do for shoulder pain? Is that the question? That's the question, yeah. Raph. Well, um, there's got to be an acronym like SHITS that <laughs> is basically some kind of exercise for the shoulder. Oh. So like sex for the shoulder. <laughs> some kind of exercise. <laughs> some kind of exercise, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think like, I'm, I'm going to copyright that. Are you? <laughs> Sex, note sex that for the shoulder. Ju- note that, Julie, everyone. <laughs> Raphael Bender has just copyrighted that. Yeah. Sex for the shoulder. Sex okay. for the that's, shoulder. that's my new method oh. of shoulder rehabilitation. <laughs> I had no idea that that's where this podcast would end up going today, guys, and that is the, the beauty of this uh, dialogue unfolding. So, Raph, um, <laughs> would you like to explain your method? Uh, <laughs> well, it's it's um, – it's very complex. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, and there's lots of nuance to it. Right. No, so, okay. All right. So there, there's a lot of research. So there's a lot of research, even though we've got these extremely shaky underpinnings about is scapular dyskinesis an actual thing, and is there an actual difference in a craniohemoral distance, like the, the space under the acromion, with people with shoulder pain and not? And the answer to that is no. There was a recent systematic review in 2020 that found no difference in the subacromial distance there. So all, even though the theory underneath- 2020. Yeah, 2020. It's uh, Park et al. 2020, the, guys. That's very, very And the title up-to-date. is uh, No Relationship Between the Acromiohumeral Distance and Pain in Adults with Subacromial Pain Syndrome, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis from Park et al. 2020. Um and so that's just another nail in the coffin of the whole notion of scat of shoulder impingement, which is not a term that we use anymore. Um, we use rotator cuff related shoulder pain, or my preference is shits, something yeah. hurts in the shoulder. Um, and so, uh, what there, even though there, are, there's just really basically the whole theoretical underpinnings of like rehabilitating the scapula to be more stable have been undermined by this scientific research. There's still shitloads of research in like, oh, how do we rehabilitate the scapula? Right? How do we retrain these scapulas to be in a a better position. Um, and so there is some, uh, there's conflicting research about whether you actually can change the position of a scapula, right? So some studies find like, oh, we did strengthen the scapular muscles and we stretch this and we blah, blah, blah. And now look, the scapulas are in, scapulae are in a better position. And other studies were like, oh no, we did all those same exercises and the scapulae didn't change position. So it's like, it's not really clear whether you can in fact change the position. Um, but uh, when we put scapular retraining exercises up against just general shoulder strengthening and stretching, right? So we have two groups of people, both have shoulder pain, same age, same gender, same socioeconomic status, blah, blah, blah. And half of them get scapular focused exercise, you know, posterior tilt, 
rheumatoid, lower trapezius strengthening, serratus activation, blah, 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 you know, all of the things, All the things. Um, All the complicated things. And the other ones get freaking push-ups and rowing and some (laughs) pull-ups. Yeah. A horizontal push-pull, a vertical push-pull, Raph. And a generic kind of set of stretches like you'd get down at the local YMCA from the most junior member of staff there, right? Just like total generic shoulder exercises, (laughs) right? Um, And we have those two groups. What we find is they both improve with no differences between the groups, right? They both improve to the same degree. So what that suggests is that exercise works, exercise helps these people, and what kind of exercise you do doesn't really seem to matter, you know? So scapular retraining does work, it just doesn't work any better than any other form of exercise. So it's it's just kind of like this overly complex and convoluted, you know, method of just giving someone shoulder exercise when they could just do some push-ups and it would be just as good. And with the more complex exercises, is there any, and the more, you know, specific, specific, help, help. Specific. Thank you. Well, no, I was going for specific. I'm going for a bigger word. Specificity. Thank you. That's what I was trying to say, which I blatantly can't today. Um, Kid and brain, everyone, kid and brain. Um, uh, Was there more of a chance of uh, nocebo in there or or reliance on someone else to give them those exercises? I'm just curious. I haven't found any studies that looked at that. Usually these are like really mechanistic studies. They just look like two groups. Right, right, right. One gets scapular exercise, one gets general General exercise. See who gets better. And the answer is they all get better the same amount, right? Um, And they uh, all get better at the same time. Like it's all just very. Yeah, same, 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 same. same, same. Okay. Um, And my favourite study, like there are many, many studies and I'll link to a bunch of them in the show notes, um, but this is my favourite study in this area. It's by Chris Littlewood, who's one of my favorite researchers in this area. Um, and he, uh, it's called, uh, it's from 2016, uh, sorry, 2018. I'm sure it was 2016. Maybe I got it wrong in my, um, oh yeah, no, that's why I'm looking at his rebuttal. That's wrong. That's the wrong paper. Um, what I'm looking at for is Littlewood 2016. Yes. Right. So it's called a self-managed single exercise program versus usual physiotherapy treatment for rotator cuff tendinopathy, a randomized controlled trial. So what they basically did was they had people with rotator cuff tendinopathy, which remember is one of the kind of conditions that fall under the umbrella of shoulder impingement, which is caused by scapular dyskinesis, right? So it's just like, it's a version of that. Um, And so, and they divided them into half and half of them got usual physiotherapy, which could be anything the physiotherapist wanted, right? So this was like two or three visits a week. They could do, you know, exercise, movement retraining, posture education, manipulation, electrotherapy, dry needling, taping, like whatever the physiotherapist deemed necessary, right? Or any combination of these things. Mm-hmm. And the other group got a single self-managed exercise to do at home. Like, so they had one session the second group and the exercise they got was like, okay, show us the most painful movement for your shoulder. And they're like, okay, here's a TheraBand. Now do that movement with a TheraBand. That's your exercise, right? So the exercise was not chosen to strengthen particular muscles or move the scapula in a particular way. It's just like do the most painful movement against resistance and that's your exercise. Okay. Right. And they were shown, it was the self-managed part comes in. They were shown that it was meant to, the symptoms were meant to settle after they worked, right? So for they, it was so painful that it was like blown up, you know, painful for two days. They had to regress it, make it easier. And if it wasn't painful enough, like if it wasn't a five out of 10 pain, they were told to add resistance. They were showed how to do that. So they got to self-manage the resistance so that it was like painful enough, but not too painful. And what they found was, guess what? Same fucking results. Everyone got the same results, right? They all improved the exact same amount, right? So except one, one group had like five times the amount of treatment that the other group had or 10 times the amount of treatment. They had like two or three sessions a week for for six weeks, right? And the other group just had one session and a TheraBand, right? So- And was one group asked to experience more pain? Yeah, one group was specifically (laughs) told to do their painful movement. They were trying to provoke pain, Yeah, right? And they were not given any corrections about their scapular position or anything. It was just like, do the most painful movement. Uh That's your exercise Uh over and over and over. Uh-huh. Three sets of ten. So, was this study trying to also see that it's okay? Like, was this a study about also that it is okay to yes provoke to, to, pain, work, to, into mo- pain. to work into so pain? That, yeah, they yeah. looked at several things. So, is it okay to work into pain? And mm. the answer is yeah. It seems to be totally fine. Yeah. Right. Can we do? Can we in one session in a theraband? Can we get the same result as we could in twelve? 
you know, one hour sessions with a physiotherapist? And the answer is yes, we can. Right. right. <laughs> so, so what that says is that all of that fancy schmancy, you know, shit that the physiotherapists are doing is not adding any additional value mm. on what the person could just do with the TheraBand by themselves at they home. They didn't have another group as well, did they, that were that basically did nothing? And no, could, but- Because I like those where you can see yeah. whether it's also, could it have just been regression to the mean? Or uh, yeah. Yeah. did they actually need the exercise to stimulate getting better quicker? That's They're the yeah. ones I like. Uh, all right. Well, I've got a really great study here on that called- um, well, I've got two actually. One is which patients do not recover from shoulder impingement syndrome with either operative treatment or non-operative treatment. Um, and what they found was basically um, they look at in any randomized control, most randomized controlled trials, there's a there's a no treatment arm, right? So if you look at like trials for surgery for rotator cuff repair or whatever, usually I have one group that has surgery and one group that gets a waiting list. Right. Right. And then we look at the people on the waiting list, we look at people who've got surgery, see who gets better outcomes, right? Um, and so what these people did was they basically got all of the data from the people on the wait lists for these shoulder pain survey, shoulder pain studies, right? So it could they could have been comparing it with surgery or corticosteroids or exercise or whatever, but they didn't get the active groups. They just got all of the data from the from the control groups, right? The groups that just got no treatment. Yeah. Right. And so they were trying to figure out what's the natural history of rotator cuff related shoulder pain. Right. If we do nothing, what happens to these people? What they found was they basically all got better within 12 months. Right. And that the outcome of 12 months was basically the same as the outcome of 24 months. So we don't need to follow them for 24 months. But, you know, whatever improvement is going to happen happens within 12 months. And so the majority of them improved you know, basically within 12 months. So, yeah, so the natural history is a significant factor in these situations. And if you just if you just leave it alone, it's probably going to get better, right? Give it, give it about a year, right? <laughs> and if you have surgery, it might get better a bit quicker, but it's not going to get more better. Mm. So I think uh, a lot of this comes down to managing clients' expectations as well. And, you know, um, having a, a, a realistic expectation for your clients. It's like, yeah, you might still have discomfort for however many months, yeah. et cetera, as opposed to, ah, oh, you'll be better next week. Because uh, I think that that actually knowing that I was, I was speaking about this um, actually just last night, this that, that topic uh, with the November crew, because we were talking about tissue healing times, okay? And I was explaining to them that that knowing your tissue healing times is important as well because you can actually, uh, it can be empowering for your clients. And I gave an example of one of my clients who um, really fit, fit young woman. Uh, she was snowboarding, um, damaged, injured her ankle, did quite a lot of ligament tendon damage, was in a moon boot the works. Anyway, uh, she was, I remember this day she was in my reformer class and she was still getting some discomfort in that ankle and, and, uh, didn't have quite the same ROM as the other side. So range of movement when we were doing some sort of plantar dorsiflexion, basically flexing and, you know, <laughs> flexing and pointing your, your foot. And she said to me, I really, it was a really distinctive moment. She said to me, ah. Oh, I'm injured now forever. Like, this is it. This is it. And I said, oh, I said, let's have a little, let's have a little chat. And I said, where, where are we at now? And she was about six months post the injury. Okay. Now I know my tissue healing times and tendons and ligaments, well, they take longer. They could take up to 12 to 18 months, depending on the amount of damage that was done, et cetera. You know, how much progressive loading you're doing to help stimulate, you know, the rehab and so on. And I said to her, I said, you know what? I said, A, you're doing freaking awesome and you're doing exactly what, what we need to do to progressively load your your ankle back to back to strength and, and back to range of full range of movement. And you're still within your tissue healing time. So it's totally normal that you're still having uh, not quite that amount, you know, the same amount of ROM as the other side and you might still have some discomfort. And she looked at me and she said, why has no one ever told me that? Yeah. And, and I said, I, I don't know. She said, I feel so much better now. I'm so relieved. And, and that was so empowering for her. Uh, so it's managing clients' expectations can actually be really empowering. She thought that she should not have any discomfort, yeah. pain or... And, and I think that we think that, 
you know, a lot in Pilates as well. Like we think like any kind of pain or ache or, or niggle in our body is like the oil light going on in your car, which means like, oh shit, you better stop driving now and, and do something about it. Whereas in reality, I think, you know, aches and pains and discomforts are just a normal part of everyday life. And you just kind of ignore them and <laughs> keep going about your business most of the time. Crack, crack on as, uh, as Adam Eakins yeah. says. Um, it's like who hasn't had a bit of a stiff neck in the morning sometimes or. Well, you know, we've become yeah. a society and this is, this is probably, uh, this is a, for, uh, this would be a great another episode when we talk more about pain. But I mean, we have become a bit of a society that is pain and discomfort adverse. Yeah. yeah? The first sign of some sort of niggle, we pop, pop the the Panadol or the Nurofen, am I allowed to mention brands on here? I don't know, but we, you know. That'd be um, uh, paracetamol or ibuprofen. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, you pop a painkiller basically. What do they call it? or Panadol you... and paracetamol in the US. They call it, uh, it'll come to me anyway. It's got yeah. a different name. Yeah. So, you know, and we have, we have, as I, I think we have become quite pain adverse. Yeah. And, yeah. and what you said about, you know, getting back to what you said about psychological kind of impact of, on people of, you know, their expectations, yeah. actually it's got an impact on their recovery. Um, and in uh, the last thing I'd, I'd like to share is this um, trial by Chester et al. 2016 called Psychological Factors Associated with Outcome of Physiotherapy for, shop, for People with Shoulder Pain, a multi-centre longitudinal cohort study. And I think we've talked about this one before, but they looked at basically, um, they had um, about 800 or 1,000 patients in this was a pretty big trial and they all had shoulder pain and they looked at a bunch of stuff at baseline, like 71 factors, you know, like the range of motion, strength, pain levels, body mass, you know, a bunch of other stuff and some psychological factors. And then they followed them for a year and they saw who got better and who didn't. And what they found is that none of the physical clinical tests had relationship with, with their eventual outcomes. The, the thing that predicted most strongly their outcome was their expectation of positive outcome. And so the people in session number one on day one, before they had any treatment, said, yeah, I think I'm going to get better. Guess what? They're the ones who got better. And so, um, you know, that doesn't establish causation. It doesn't establish that those, that if we just can convince those people that they'll get better, they will. But it, it, it suggests that it's a possibility, right? So I think um, we should absolutely give our clients realistic expectations, but we should give them we should err on the side of optimism with our realistic expectations. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Good talk. Yeah. So, um, so when it comes back, when it comes to shoulder pain, sex. <laughs> <laughs> Just some kind of exercise. <laughs> Just anything, right? And give them some positive expectations. You know, give them some realistic I'm, but positive I'm expectations. Imagine the little like. <laughs> Copyright symbol <laughs> next to that. Sex. Sex. Copyright. TM, yeah. Yes, <laughs> trademark TM. <laughs> Are we getting T-shirts printed? Yeah, we've got to make some kind of little special shoulder exercise uh, <laughs> implement. <laughs> In fact, it could be like a, a shoulder female empowerment product or something like that. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've seen, uh, I'm seeing we your, haven't talked about that for a while. I've seen your lucrative commercial partnership. You know, I got another <laughs> another company reach out to me. Really? Yes. So another one. Another, like what's – It's only going to – I've only got gonna, a kid in everyone. I don't need – it's fine. I'm like happy. <laughs> I'm like – I've got company. It's like <laughs> – <laughs> okay, right. wow, this is just going downhill now. But right. um, so, so, right, so someone comes to you with shoulder pain. Don't don't bother about assessing their scapular mechanics. No, right? it's not a thing. No, talk about their goals. What's important yeah. to them? Talk about what their expectations are, and tell them that great news. Most people with shoulder pain make a full recovery within a year. Right. Mm -hmm. All we've got to do is get you moving and get you strengthening up. Mm -hmm. So let's get going. Do some push-ups. Go. Mm -hmm. Right. Sex. Something that's some like some kind of exercise <laughs> some for the kind shoulder. Of exercise <laughs> for the <laughs> yeah. If yeah. I've got the shits, give them yeah. sex. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, good talk. <laughs> Thanks, After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, 
confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.